God, we say thank you this evening for the gift of your son Jesus, whom we've gathered to worship just as long ago the wise men and the shepherds did. And so God, now in this place tonight, we quiet our hearts, we ready our hearts, and we want to take that same uh, attitude of worship. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, you can uh, go ahead and have a seat. And My name's Brad, and um, I'm part of the teaching and leadership team here at uh, Jericho Ridge, and I want to extend uh, a welcome to you this evening and uh, just explain a few of the things that have become traditions here at Jericho Ridge. Um, some of you may have participated at some point in the past in a candlelight service, uh, we here have the privilege of meeting in this facility, which the Forestry Council of BC contributed $15 million to, and there's a lot of wood around as a result of that. And so they've asked that candles be kept at a bare minimum, and, you know, candles and five-year-olds don't always mix together in the most effective and safety-conscious way. Uh, and so uh, we just try to create a little bit of a different atmosphere, and we want to uh, invite you into participating in that we're a very casual bunch here at Jericho Ridge. So at any time during the course of our evening, you want to wander over and grab uh, some hot apple cider or some water, or uh, if there's anything that we can help you with, any of our ushering team can uh, point you in the right uh, direction throughout the course of our evening together. And uh, kids, you guys have those activity pieces going on there. So if you get stuck with sewing, that's what the star is in there. You're going to sew all around the outside there. Just ask an adult around you for a little bit of help, and they can, they can help. You can take that home with you, put it on your tree uh, if you want, if your parents will let you. If your parents have decor standards at your house like we do at our house, then you've got to check that with them first. So, Well, uh, I don't know about you, but when we come into this time of year, one of the things that I really love at this time of year is I love all of those retrospectives that they do on TV and then you get in the magazines, they're always kind of doing like the newsmakers of the year and I have a very short memory so it helps me to kind of jog my mind to kind of think, oh yeah, we had the Olympics earlier this year, didn't we? That was cool. Um, so I was reading a few of these and one of the things that I, I read was a Time magazine had chosen uh, Facebook CEO and co-founder Mark Zuckerberg, uh, Zuckerberg rather, for, uh, as their person of the year. So I just wanted to say uh, congratulations to Time magazine for discovering Facebook. It only took them about three years after my grandfather, who's turning 90 in five days, to discover that maybe he should be the man of the year. But uh, that's fine. They can do whatever they want. No one asked me in terms of what should be included in retrospectives in the year. Uh, but if they did ask me what was going to be included in a retrospective this year, I would probably choose, other than the Olympics, you know, because that was a big, big deal, right, for us here in Vancouver. But in the, let's say we looked at the second half of the year, if somebody asked me, well, what did they think, what did I think was a story in the second half of the year that was deserved to be included in some of these retrospectives, I'd say it would have to be a story of dissent. It was a story that captured our collective attention in a way that uh, very few stories have capacity to do these days. And it was the story, you'll remember, of the Chilean miners uh, trapped underneath uh, the, the rocks in uh, going from August all the way through till October. And the story began in August with tragedy. On August the 5th, a cave-in occurred at the mine that these 33 men 
uh, were working at in the Atacama Desert near Copiano, Chile. And the mine had actually experienced several accidents before this one, including one fatality. Uh, but the cave-in had occurred for these men about five kilometers away from the main entrance shaft of the mine. And so rescue was presumed difficult, if not impossible. And so the accident on August the 5th left 33 men trapped 700 meters below ground. And in the dark, these men had every reason to believe that they would die of starvation, trapped in a black hole. They drank, we learned later, only uh, oil-tainted water from the radiators of the vehicles that were in the mine, and they rationed out spoonfuls of tuna for rations that they had in some of the lunch kits, a biscuit and a small sip of milk every two days was all that they were allowed. Several of them uh, wrote farewell letters to their family and those that they were close to, thinking that they may not see them ever again. And on the surface, eight separate boreholes were drilled through the earth to try and see if the men were alive or dead. There was no contact uh, that they were able to have with them. And after 14 days, one of the drills broke through into an area where they thought the miners might be, but there was no signs of life. And so collectively, the hopes and the dreams of all of those who were gathered at Camp Hope plummeted into despair. And three days later, another borehole broke through on the 17th day, and a drill bit penetrated the surface of their isolation, and the miners were able to attach a little note. They had heard a drill digging close to them for days, and they were waiting and waiting and waiting and hoping that it might somehow come close to the area that they were trapped in. And so when it broke through, they were able to attach a little note to the drill bit that was taken back up to the surface, and the note read, Estamos bien en el refugio los, and my Spanish is very poor. Someone help me out. 33 in Spanish? Okay, fair enough. All right. Which in English is all 33 of us are alive in the refuge. But now, 17 days in, they're alive in the refuge, but the real story of descent begins. How do you rescue 33 people trapped 2,300 feet below the surface of a rocky desert? Well, a $20 million rescue effort was mounted, and four separate rescue shafts are began in different locations, all with a hope that they would make it in time. And as the rescue efforts were initiated, they were able to drill a slightly larger hole that they could send down food and medicine, and they asked the men if they wanted anything, and the men requested that Bibles be sent down along with food and medicine. One of the miners, Jose Otiera, wrote, I tell you, we pray here every day at noon since this happened. Here we have many different faiths, but we are all brothers in God. Jimmy Sanchez, who was the youngest miner, he was just 19 years old. And he said, when interviewed later, in fact, there were 34 of us in the mine because God never left us. Chile's president, Sebastian Piñera stated, when the first miner emerges safe and sound, I hope that all of the bells in all of the churches of Chile 
will ring out forcefully with joy and with hope because of the faith that has moved mountains. At the time of their rescue, as it got closer and closer, one billion people from around the globe were watching live TV streams out of Camp Hope. And as the rescue capsule went down, 18 minutes it takes to go from the surface down to descend in the darkness in what became known as the Phoenix capsule. And so time after time, the capsule goes down and descends until on October 13th, a full 69 days after the cave-in, all 33 of the miners are rescued and brought to safety. Take a look at this amazing video footage of their ordeal. The last of the 33 miners trapped more than half a kilometre below ground in the Chilean pit collapse reached the surface on Wednesday. 54-year-old Luis Orsua was the shift foreman when the cave-in at the Copiapo mine began the 69-day ordeal. The man who insisted he wouldn't leave until all his colleagues were safely above ground emerged to a hero's welcome and celebrations across the country. The miners were taken to hospital for checkups. Most were said to be in remarkably good condition, apart from one who was suffering from pneumonia. The departure of the rescue workers who went down the evacuation shaft to bring the miners to safety will mark the end of a survival story many call a miracle. Their journey is the same 625-meter route taken by the miners in a specially built metal capsule barely wider than a man's shoulders. Paul Chapman, Curtis. It's a pretty amazing story when you stop to think about it. How all of them came to be reunited with their family. How all of them came uh, up fully healthy and strong. It's a miraculous story, too, that the rescue workers tell of their descent to try and save these trapped men. A story which continues to change their lives and the lives of many people forever. And when some of them were asked later to reflect on their rescue, they said things like Mario Spovendida, one of the 33 miners, I have been with God and I have been with the devil, he said. They both fought for me and God won. Because, you see, any story of descent, any descent in our own lives changes us. Whether it's economic or interpersonal conflict or vocational, often when we get into trouble, it causes us to think about our priorities with a new level of clarity. For these miners, it was no exception. Alex Vega said of his ordeal, I realized that my family was the first thing in my life. I've also changed spiritually. I've become closer to God. And maybe that's why this story of descent fascinated us so deeply. Because whenever somebody like a rescue worker descends from a place of safety and security and comfort, it moves us. These rescuers are willing to go into the depths of despair and danger, into the earth to save someone who's trapped and who cannot free themselves no matter how hard they try. When that happens, we take notice. And we know that sitting at home on our couches watching TV, we can't do anything really. We can't rescue them in any way. But we hope and we pray that somebody 
can. That someone would be willing to give themselves fully to that rescue mission. And you may have already picked up a little bit on some of the parallels between the stories of the rescue of the Chilean miners and the Christmas story. Because really they're both stories of descent. You see, Christmas reminds us that the whole human race was trapped. The whole human race was in desperate need, like the scriptures that we read from Genesis and from Isaiah indicated to us. We were in need of rescue and in need of hope. And Christmas reminds us, really, that one of the most profound stories of descent in human history, it didn't actually bring us closer to God. More accurately, it brought God more closer to us. And the New Testament Gospel of John is very clear on the language that it uses to describe how God came close to us. In chapter 1 of John, it says this, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. The one who is the true light who gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And so the word, or Jesus Christ, became flesh, became human, and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. The scripture says in another place, in the fullness of time, the Father sends the Son Jesus into our world. He descends from heaven lower and lower and lower until he descends to a lowly manger, one of the lowliest places in one of the lowliest parts of the socioeconomic or political or economic stratosphere of his day and time. He descends, and like those rescue workers, he breaks through into our world with hope and the promise of rescue. This is a mission of unparalleled import and consequence because light has come, the scripture says, to shine in the darkness. And the challenge with stories of descent is that they can reveal our areas of helplessness. Descending can make you feel helpless. I can remember uh, in 1991 being in St. Petersburg, Russia, and I was riding uh, the subway down in uh, the system, subway system there, and everything looks, when you get into St. Petersburg, like a very normal subway system. You pay your token and you go in through until you get to the escalator that actually takes you down into the subway system. And the, I don't know if any of you have been in the subway system or read about it, but it was designed during the Cold War, and it was designed actually as a, a shelter that would uh, preserve the citizens of St. Petersburg in case of full-out nuclear attack. And so they built the subway system one mile underground. And so when you get on the escalator to go down, it's not just a nice little gentle people mover that kind of takes you to where you need to go. It's a full-on, almost fall-off, if you don't hold on to the handrail, descent. And I remember thinking as I was going down, how far is this going to take me into the earth? This just keeps going down and down and down. And in St. Petersburg at that time, it was right after Perestroika, and so power was not always reliable, and so the overhead lights are kind of flickering on and off. And it's not a smooth... Nice little escalator. It's kind of a shaky little escalator that you're going down, down, down. And I remember thinking to myself, if something happens to me, I am a mile underground. 
there is no way they're going to ever find our bodies down here. Which is a bit of an irrational thought when you think of it. You're going into a public transit system, so certainly there's probably some level of remedy for it at all. But in my mind, going a mile underground, first of all, it re-solidified my vocational choice that I never wanted to go into mining or anything having to do with like the space shuttle or, or uh, anything under the sea and like, uh, anything like that. Not that I'm super claustrophobic, but I always kind of thought to myself, if I get stuck, nobody's going to come help me in those types of vocations. And so whenever you descend, it reminds you of that helplessness. Whenever you descend, you acknowledge, like those miners did, that if something goes wrong, you might not be able to actually get yourself out of that particular situation. You might be helpless to save yourself. And you might have to depend totally on somebody else to come and rescue you. And friends, really, the message of Christmas is that the same story is true in our lives. You and I need a rescue mission. We need a light to shine into our darkness. And the amazing news of Christmas and the amazing reason that we celebrate hope at Christmas is that God himself descended into our world in a rescue mission. And he broke through. And he still breaks through into our lives today. He still breaks through into marriage situations that are falling apart. He still breaks through into young hearts and lives that are riddled with anxiety and fear about the future. He still breaks through into those dark places of sin and shame that we try to cover over from everybody else in our lives, but that we know exist. He tries, he still breaks through into the journey that you're on, walking with somebody through terminal illness, or the journey that you've been on maybe this last year of losing somebody that's been particularly close to you. He still walks with you in that journey. Maybe even through the course of this evening. You've been so busy coming up to this night that you're exhausted. But you still have to have some hosting duties over the course of the next couple days. And somewhere inside of your heart, you put a smile on the outside of your face. But you might be a little bit bitter about that somewhere inside of your heart. Big problems are little ones. All of us in our lives need a rescue mission. The message of Christmas and that particular story of descent is that the story of Jesus' descent to our world changes everything. It means that heaven has broken through dramatically into our world and will break through again for you. Now, I don't know where you're at tonight in this place, but I know where I want to be. I want to voluntarily put myself yet again in a place of helplessness. I want to descend again. I want someone to descend and rescue me. And so I want to invite you here tonight in this place, as the team comes, they're going to lead us in some songs of reflection and response. I want to invite you to put yourself and your fears, and more accurately, release your fears to the one who came to rescue you. Maybe you need to release your need for control in different aspects of your life. Maybe you need to release your fears or your right to decide and call your own shots in the destiny of your life. You may want to even express that physically to God, even just silently in your own personal story of descent. You may want to actually descend to your knees right where you are seated. 
And this is a physical posture that just lets God know and is saying to God, I want to receive the rescue that you initiated for me. I want to embrace that story of descent and I want to embrace the rescue that you're offering to me here this evening. Because one of the greatest ironies of our existence as humans is that from descent and stories of descent springs hope. The scriptures put it this way, but to all who acknowledge their hopelessness and their helplessness and say, I want to believe in you, Jesus, and accept him, he gives the right to become children of God. And there's a rebirth that happens. Not a physical rebirth that results from human passion or plan, but a rebirth that comes from God. When you initiate your own personal story of descent and humility, don't be surprised when a completely different type of hope and joy floods into your life than you've ever experienced before. Like those miners emerging from their rocky grave, hope springs forth eternal. And so the team's going to lead us in some songs of reflection and response. And I want to pray for you as they lead us. And my prayer for each person here this evening is that you would each respond and say to Jesus, I accept your descent as fully sufficient to rescue me. And I receive it with humility, maybe for the first time and maybe for the hundredth time, perhaps yet again this evening. Will you accept his descent as fully sufficient to rescue you? Let's pray together. God, we say thank you for your work in history and in our world. We say thank you that you came down to rescue us. We say thank you that you broke through and that you continue to break through into our lives. Some of us are pretty skeptical about that. Some of us don't have a big history of that in our lives. And so God, here in this place tonight, I pray that you would break through into their lives, into our lives, into the lives of those who are struggling with confusion about the future, who are struggling with anxiety and fear, who are struggling with yet a, a whole list of things that they feel like they still need to get done before yet another year slips away. God, I pray that in this place tonight, you would help us to release those things to you and those fears, those anxieties to you, and that we would again as a people and as individuals fall to our knees in acknowledgement of your grace to us and your goodness in sending your son Jesus. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.